You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning again. Uh, one more time, congratulations to our class of 2021, uh, what I, which I call, I call it real graduation. Nowadays, there's like VPK, fifth grade, eighth grade, seventh grade, every kind of graduate, French class, like every kind of graduation imaginable. So congrats to real graduation to the class of 2021. We're in the book of Isaiah uh, today as we're rolling through the Bible. We're uh, on our way. We're, I can't believe we're already there, uh, that far along, I should say, uh, in these major prophets of the book of Isaiah. Before we jump in, let's pray together and ask for the Lord's blessing to continue to be on our gathering here. Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, we're thankful for the book of Isaiah and how it's going to point us to Christ, how it's going to show us your holiness, how seriously you take sin, and how seriously you take your love for your people and the promises that you have made. So we're asked to be found faithful, that you keep the enemy out of this place, out of our city. We lift up the class of 2021 to you once again, and Lord, ask that you continue to, to guide them in a way that is pleasing to you and allows them to find true joy and purpose in Christ above and before anything else. Please be with all our churches in our city as they gather today, that you will uh, allow every pastor in every pulpit to preach Jesus, and our city will be different as a result of what happens today in this community through our pulpits. Pray for our country, just a nation desperately in need of Christ, locally for our city, a city that just needs you so badly. Lord, use the churches of this community to make your name known. We ask that people will come to know you as Lord. We know you can do this, for you do it often. You are the only one who has the power to save. So it's in you we hope and in you we trust. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So the Hebrew meaning of Isaiah's name, I would say, summarizes his message. And that is the Lord saves. That is the message. That the Lord saves. Now an important question to ask then is saved, saves from what? And the reality is, it's easy to maybe say from ourselves, that's a big part of it, but even more than that, even greater than that, more significant than that, he saves us from the penalty of sin, which is death. The people who have rebelled against him. And in this book, we're gonna see that. We see the magnitude of human sin, the the judgment that all deserve because of their sin against God. I mean, Isaiah is an intense book of the Bible. And also the God who displays his glory by saving sinners. So we're gonna see the magnitude of human sin, the judgment that all people deserve because of their sin, not a random mistake, their sin against the holy God, and also the God who displays his glory by saving sinners. The Lord saves, that is what Isaiah means. The Gospel Coalition describes the book like this. Isaiah stands at a turning point in the history of God's people, when after centuries of breaking their covenant relationship, God's judgment will fall upon them and indeed the whole world. So in other words, this is kind of a buckle up, put your seatbelt on kind of book. I mean, it really is. A new person's like, whoa, okay. So Isaiah proclaims the good news though, that God will bring his kingdom, that he's gonna renew all creation, take all that's broken and fix it, repair it, make it new. And the greatest part is he's gonna restore his people to himself. The people who were lost, rebellious, broken, Worshippers of false gods, God's gonna restore them back to himself. And this redemption is not gonna be hocus pocus or just a random decision that God makes, oh, I'm gonna make it all okay. No, it's accomplished through who Isaiah refers to as a servant, the servant, 
who were foreshadowed and told will suffer in the place of sinners, that they may be forgiven and ultimately, by his grace, restored to God. There's a foreshadow here. We get to read the Bible backwards, and by that I mean we know the whole story, and, by, by, and I'm not just trying to assume that everyone in here, that you have to come here and know the whole Bible. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm saying we have a completed story. We have access to know all that Jesus has already done. They don't have this yet. What they have is a promise. And what they have is precedent of God being faithful to the promise he's made to his people to deliver them and redeem them. So here Isaiah, we're going to see a lot of really gloomy news, but also an anticipation for a delivery to come. So through his life and death and resurrection, Jesus has begun to fulfill really the, the, really the decisive promises of Isaiah. And now we wait for one more thing. And that's for Jesus to come back and actually make all things new. I had a preschooler come up me out in the lobby before the service and he had a question for me. And he said, what happens to the earth when everybody goes to heaven? I said, that's a really good question. And I said, you need to realize is the earth basically, we could say, I'm trying to explain it on, on the best level I, I, I can. I'm a simple guy, so preschool questions are, that's kind of my level, so that was great. And I said, actually, the earth, we could say, there's more to it than this, but it becomes heaven. There's a new heaven and a new earth. The earth is restored. The earth is renewed and God's kingdom reigns. So Isaiah emerges on the scene of a very critical time for God's people where there was a division that was formally divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. We talked a lot about this uh, back in Samuel and Kings and going through those, those historic books. So it's a pre-exile period uh, where this is taking place. And out of the gate, here is what they are told. Isaiah is telling them, being used by God. This is Isaiah chapter one, out of the gate. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. So if God is speaking, I wanna listen to what it is he has to say. I've raised up children and brought them up, and they have rebelled against me. He's making an accusation. He's showing them the evidence of who they are now and what they have done. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand, as in you are more clueless than an ox, that a donkey has it more together than you. Oh, sinful nation, and these are God's words, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evil doers, depraved children, they've abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. Verse 21, the faithful town, what an adulteress she has become. But that's how God views it. A sense of spiritual adultery that has happened when we worship idols, other gods, instead of him. See, the covenant God made with Israel after the Exodus was viewed by him as a type of a marriage covenant. He said this, indeed, your husband is your maker. His name is the Lord of armies, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of the whole earth. That's how God sees his covenant that he has made with his people. And to be spiritually unfaithful, he calls it a form of spiritual adultery. So why does Isaiah use such shocking language here in chapter one? I mean, that's really intense out of the gate. And the answer is really simple. 
He's telling us how seriously God views sin. And I'm thankful for that personally, even though it's hard. When I hear that and read that, I'm like, whoa. I think that because of maybe how a lot of us are brought up with a sort of sentimental view of God, just sort of like a you know, eat, pray, love version of God, but the sad part is we're unable to grasp this side of heaven how amazing God's love really is. Because I don't think we can fully grasp God's love as much as our minds, you know, our human minds can understand unless we get in the ballpark mentally, spiritually, emotionally of what God's talking about in Isaiah chapter one. Of how much his people really have betrayed him and abandoned him and said, God, no thanks, I don't want to worship you, I want to worship other things instead. And until we understand the severity of that, I don't think we can actually grasp what it means to read things like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That while we were sinners, that Christ died for us. That God is glad to call us his children. That he is our shepherd. I don't think we can get in the ballpark of understanding how great our God's love is for his people until we comprehend as much as our minds possibly can the severity of human sin. He says this, your land is desolate, your city's burned down, here's what's happened to you. Foreigners devour your fields. Right in front of you, a desolation, like a place demolished by foreigners. And foreigners in an Old Testament context is meaning people who worship other gods from other lands. It's a religious type of foreigner. Daughter Zion is abandoned, like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. I mean, there's, there's nothing left. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, so we see a glimpse of God's grace there, we'd be like Sodom. We, we would resemble Gomorrah, cities that were destroyed because of their sin and their unfaithfulness. He goes further, he goes, I'm not even into your religious stuff. Like your traditions and your ceremonies and kind of your cultural faith, I'm, I'm not into that either. Verse 13, stop bringing useless offerings. Like because of your sin and hypocrisy, your incense is, is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies, I can't stand iniquity with a festival. So you can have your funnel cakes all day long with it. I don't like festivals, but it means iniquity. God's saying he's not into that. Because I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They become a burden to me. Just, I'm tired of putting up with them. In other words, of acting like everything's okay. When it's not. He's like, I'm tired of your, your Christmas tree when the birth of the sun really doesn't mean much to you and doesn't lead you to worship me. Like I'm tired of your ham at Nana's and your pastel perfect pictures in the front yard and the Easter egg hunt you did in the neighborhood if the resurrection of Christ doesn't, doesn't change something, doesn't, doesn't mean anything to you. Because I'm, I'm tired of those things. I'm tired of your rituals. I'm tired of your baby baptisms and if it's not going to actually mean that you raise a child in a Christian home. I'm tired of those things he's saying. Like, I'm tired of it all. I mean, God even throws shade at their religious activity. But notice what's included, what's nestled in there. There's a verse 18. 
though your sins are scarlet, and he's clearly made the case they are, they'll be white as snow. Though they're crimson red, they will be like wool. These glimmers of hope that are put in between these tough and harsh words. And they're not harsh because they're true. But right in the middle of it, all of a sudden goes, but guess what? I've got this. That you are my people, I am your God. There's a tremendous love that I have for you and for my namesake and my promise and and all these sins that I'm outlining for you, guess what? One day they're gonna be washed white as snow. And imagine hearing that and not fully grasping how all that is going to work in the midst of rebellion and judgment. We see hope as rebellion and judgment are not going to be the conclusion of God's story for his people. In chapter 5, we see there will actually be a great judgment he promises for them. God's going to summon nations, including Assyria and Babylon, to carry out his judgment against his people. We'll see the city ransacked, the people brought into exile. We'll, we'll see the repetition in Isaiah, these chilling words. For all this anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. We see that in verse in 9, 12, 17, 21, 10, 4. But you know, people have called this book the fifth gospel. And the gospel means good news. The first four Gospels are the story of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see the story of the crucifixion, the resurrection, all those things in there. Some have called Isaiah the fifth Gospel, written hundreds of years before, because it takes the need for the cross and the resurrection and makes it clear as can be to God's people and offers them great hope that points them towards good news. And here's really kind of how it kicks off. Chapter six, a very, very well-known story in Isaiah. Oftentimes, if someone's gonna preach through the book of Isaiah, they might kind of focus here. We have one, one book and one sermon, so we're just gonna read through it and comment for a sec. In the year that King Uzziah died, this is Isaiah telling his story, I saw the Lord seated on a high and a lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. I mean, what a moment. This is Isaiah's experience, how God revealed himself to Isaiah for this specific prophet at this specific time with a message for God's people. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And one called to another. The splendor, it's supposed to be as extravagant and splendorous as you possibly can think. And here is their message. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. You think it fills this temple? It fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, the only thing you could possibly say when confronted in that manner by the holiness of God, woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. It's covered. 
Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who will I send, who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And he replied, go, say to these people, keep listening but do not understand, keep looking but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Let them be hardened by their hearts, by their stubbornness. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Then I said, until when, Lord? Like, how long is this judgment going to be carried out? And he replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. He's basically saying, until after the exile is over. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. So there will be a seed, there will be a foundation, but God is going to carry out his judgment against his people. But we see a glimpse of grace already. Here's Isaiah confronted with the holiness of God and says, God, I, I, I'm, I'm a man, woe is me, like I, I'm a man who has sinned, I, I can't be in your presence. And here God provides a way for him to be able to and continue the conversation. The angel comes down and provides, via God, atonement for Isaiah's sin. And now Isaiah wants to go with this mission, and God said, yes, but they have hardened hearts, and they're going to be punished for their sin to see the severity of, the, of, of, who, of what they've done, of who I am, because it's going to result in the fact that they're going to live for generations now as my people who are going to be faithful to me because I understand the cost of what they've done. And we see the remnant of God's people will remain after judgment, And in one sense, it's sad and kind of like bad news as only a remnant of God's people are gonna be saved. We see in chapter 10, though you people of Israel be the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Yet when one deserves to survive, when no one deserves to survive, the promise of even a remnant is an act of God's grace. Like when we sing the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, this is what we're talking about that it really is all an act of God's grace for even one person who deserves sin, punishment for sin to be saved. So we see a remnant chosen by God, which is common throughout the Bible, and and saved by grace is a theme that runs through the scriptures. When God judged the earth of the flood, he saved Noah's family through the ark. In the time of Elijah, God kept 7,000 from committing idolatry. When the prophets look forward to God's salvation after exile, their hope now was that a faithful remnant would be saved. And now here we are as the church, and when Christ comes, he will gather a remnant to himself. The scattered will become one. So at this point in history, God's people were divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Lots of brokenness, lots of sin, Lots of chaos, lots of judgment, and here's what we see. Chapter seven. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. A sign that it's all gonna be okay. Sometimes don't you just feel like you need that in life? It's gonna be okay. Don't you just feel like you need that sometimes? It's gonna be okay. And here's God saying, here's how it's gonna be okay. The Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. And they would have known Emmanuel is their language. That means God with us. And they'd be like, 
with us? These people who are being taken out to exile and our cities being destroyed and we're hearing these words from God and these really strict, strong words. Wait, wait, God's gonna, it, it's all gonna be okay? Like, like it's really all gonna be okay? And that's what God wants his people to know. Isaiah twice referred to the day of the Lord when uh, concerning Babylon. For, for Babylon, this day will be cruel. I think God's gonna deal with them eventually. We see a city used often in Isaiah as an image Throughout the 20s of Isaiah, he views the entire world culture as a lofty city because its place is really filled with pride and self-sufficiency and self-worship and do whatever makes you happy and my life, my way, you do you, I'll do me. But we're told that God will destroy it and establish what he calls a strong city for his people. There's a lofty city and there'll be a strong city. In Isaiah verses 28 through 30, or chapters 28 through 35, God expresses a great dissatisfaction in his people who are lacking faith. Yet he remains faithfully committed to fulfilling his promises to them. Faithless people, faithful God. Isaiah 36 through 39, he demonstrates that God can be trusted to fulfill his promises and as Israel is being sent to exile into Babylon, that he's still going to be with them. Did you know that as the church, when Peter's writing to the believers, he calls us exiles. He uses the same language that would have been used for the people going into Babylonian captivity because of their sin. Now, we're not exiles anymore because of our sin. We've been redeemed. We're exiles because God has us in a world that's not our home. So these people here, God's people, were taken out of God's city, out of their land that he had for them and brought to another place. They were legitimate exiles. Now we are spiritual exiles. So people aren't supposed to be able to understand us. They're not. They're not supposed to think we're normal. I was in a conversation the other day and I said, man, you, you think I'm nuts because I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman? I got something more for you. I believe a dead guy came back to life three days later. I mean, man and a woman, that's low-fat vanilla ice cream compared to what else I believe. And that's skim milk, which is water with white food coloring in it, in case you didn't know. Uh, yeah, th- that's all that is. I believe a dead guy came back to life three days later is going to return one day on a horse to redeem people for himself. This is not supposed to be normal. The gospel's foolishness to the world, we're told, but for us, it's power unto salvation. We are of another world. We are exiles in a place that is not our home. Through Isaiah, God tells Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, of his people's future exile when everything's going to be carried into Babylon. God's telling him exactly what's going to happen. And then we get to chapter 40, and there's a discernible shift that takes place. The tone changes, the emphasis changes, and hope becomes the theme for the rest of the time. From 1 through 39, it's like kaboom, with little glimmers of hope in between pointing to Christ, white as snow, Emmanuel will come, born of a virgin, little, but little, like it's, it's like nuclear bombs put on us, then a little bit of hope. And now from verse 40 forward, we see that this little bit of hope was not just to make us feel better for a second, but it was the reality of what was to come. And the theme becomes these two words, fear not. That becomes the theme of Isaiah after verse 40, chapter 40. Fear not. How often do we need to hear that from God? 
fear not. Fear not. Why? Because he is with them. Because he is their people. So we see someone introduced called the servant. And he's introduced through four what are called servant songs. Excuse me. Vaccinated. Good to go. I can cough. And Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, 49, verses 1 through 7, 50, verses 1 through 11, 52 and 13, if you're taking notes, through 53, 12. And according to these songs, the servant will be full of the Spirit, speak as a prophet, walk in obedience, and die as a substitute for the sins of the world. Here's what we're told about this servant that is presented here. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But, but here's what we did. Here's what he's going to do. He was pierced because of our rebellion. Crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And what's the amazing news of this fifth gospel? We're healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord, notice it doesn't say, punished us. This is like, has punished him for the iniquity of us all. This is a glimpse of what is called substitutionary atonement. That this servant, notice he did nothing wrong. There's no indictment upon him. We're the ones who have turned away. We're the ones who have rejected. Yet the Lord punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was punished so we could have, we're told, peace. Do you know that God wants you to have peace? Like he wants you not to be someone with turmoil inside your heart. He wants you to have peace inside your heart. Like we said last week, he's the, Jesus is the gate, John chapter 10. We go into him for pasture. And the image of a pasture, this big field that just kind of makes you go, peace. It's like a deep breath. And then he says, I have come and may have a life and have it more abundantly is the very next verse, which is it found in him ultimately. What, what a passage, this servant, the one being pointed to, wait, he's coming. God has a plan. He's not done with you. He's made a promise for you. And it's not that he's not done with you. He has an incredible plan for you in Christ for you to be his people for all eternity. The final movement of Isaiah's prophecy, it really kind of points the readers towards now the kingdom of God, where the Holy One of Israel is king, and his kingdom has been secured by the servant, and now he awaits his people. See, Isaiah continually reassures the readers of God's great love for great sinners. Jesus talks about the Father's kindness towards all who maybe have made massive mistakes or a wreck of their lives We've seen the prodigal son story. Someone who squandered everything came home and the father welcomed him and celebrated that. Isaiah 55, let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him. 
for he will abundantly pardon. Hear that, great sinners in the room? He will abundantly pardon. People come to church all different ways. Some come in sprinting on a Sunday morning, can't wait to be here. Some come in because it's part of your routine that you do, which that's awesome too. Some come in limping, figuratively limping, because life is hard and the brokenness in this world and what you've been through. Some by your choice, some by the choices of others, whatever it might be. Others come in and don't want anyone to see them because they're embarrassed. They know about their lives, they know about their decisions, they know in a small town like ours, people know. They don't want to be seen. And the message is true for every single person in every one of those categories I just listed. He will abundantly pardon. Abundantly pardon. God is not a respecter of persons when it comes to his grace. What we all have in common, those who are in Christ, is we have been redeemed by the servant who suffered in our place. That God sees us all as his people of his possession. So after the salvation won by the substitutionary servant, we still see sin happen. Isaiah 57, there's still sin. And here's Isaiah's aim to show, this is from Liam Gallagher, not to be confused, the lead singer of the rock band Oasis, but the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Isaiah's aim is to show the righteousness of God's kingdom by detailing the wretchedness of sin. Chapter 65, the kingdom isn't only righteous, but also redemptive. And it reminds the reader that the Holy One of Israel will clothe himself with salvation and that a redeemer will appear for his people. And the book then draws to a close, which what Davy Ellison calls a vista of the flawless kingdom. Chapter 65. The Holy One of Israel's flawless kingdom, new heaven, new earth, is the ultimate destination for God's people. It's not exile. It's not Babylon. It's not this world. This is not the ultimate destination for the people of God. It's his flawless kingdom. And he keeps saying, the God of Israel. The God of Israel. That's to remind us that he's a personal God. Yes, he's the God of all the cosmos, but he's a God for a people. And this vital moment in the Israelite history here, Isaiah assures the people of God that they will be known as the redeemed ones. They won't be known by their sin. They'll be known as his people. So Isaiah's focus, we could say, is the Holy One of Israel and the redemption of God's people. And Isaiah's desire is for his readers that that they won't stay in their minds lost and wandering from God, but they'll find their place in the flawless kingdom of the Holy One. And how's that going to happen? By the grace of God, returning to him instead of following the idols of this world. So as the book wraps up 60 through 66, it shows us that God will come in glory. He will bring eternal judgment for the rebellious and joyful salvation and a new creation for all who trust in him. Jesus has received all authority from the Father. And ultimately, he is the one who will carry out this judgment. And God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. And his name is Jesus, the servant whom God has appointed. From the one who was crushed for our iniquities, from the one who rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, and now rules and reigns over all creation for all time. This is the one we're invited to. 
This is the one Isaiah points us towards. And the imagery, he says, those who wait on the Lord, you know, he's gonna do these broken people, these hurting people, these people who wonder if God has forgotten about them. He says, you know what's gonna happen to them? They're gonna be like eagles, we're told. They're gonna renew their strength. They're gonna mount on wings like eagles. Like, what a swing. Renew their strength. They have no strength now. They're completely, I mean, they're completely at the mercy of their captors. And God's saying, you hold up. I'm gonna renew your strength. I'm gonna renew your strength. Be not mistaken, church, God will not share his glory with anyone else. The book of Isaiah is not meant to give us little pithy quotes for pithy quotes for our coffee mugs. It is meant to show us that God is serious about himself and he's serious about his people. And he is working throughout history to redeem a people to himself just as he has promised. So that he will receive the glory and also that we as his people will receive his love. What an incredible thing. That all the promises that God made to Israel are found for us, yes, in Jesus Christ. That he is the true Israel of God. That we are the people of God. And it's not that the church is a replacement of Israel, it's the fulfillment of Israel. The fulfillment. That the people of God, a promise that was made is not made by ethnic lines. It is made by spiritual lines. That God has a people for himself that he has redeemed through the suffering of his servant who would rise, ascend, and is coming again to usher in God's flawless kingdom where people will be with him forever. That's the message of Isaiah in about 40 minutes. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the book of Isaiah that is unmistakably shining on your holiness. Lord, let us remember that first and foremost, you are a holy God. You're a holy God. The angels cried out, holy, holy, holy. That was their first response to you. Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah said that he is a man of unclean lips. Lord, since you are the one who only alone is holy, that means you are also the only one who can save. So we're thankful you, the one who makes people holy through the blood of Christ, is also the God who knows us personally and calls us his own. What an amazing thing to know. The God of all creation, the God of Israel, is also the God of us in this room, individuals that you know by name. So what I ask that we'll be so convinced of who you are and what you've done that we turn from the idols of this world and we turn to the servant who came to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm grateful by your grace to be counted in that remnant. Lord, may you by your grace add more people to yourself. If there's anyone today that needs you, Lord, please put it upon their hearts to respond to you, to be made new, to become a part of your family, to turn from your sin, their sins and turn to Christ, who was freely available to all of us, even though it was greatly a cost to him as he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was upon him. Amazing. Let us never lose sight of that or take it for granted. We thank you for these great books. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.